welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. Welcome to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. And I'm Chris Bullfinch. And we're going to talk about show closures because that's been a big topic in the last few weeks. We also have our usual bevy of numismatic content and an interview with Dr. Paul Landsberg, who operates Ephesus Numismatics and is a well-known seller of numismatic items online, especially through uh, social media groups. And if you enjoyed today's episode or if you've enjoyed any of our previous episodes, please remember to keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe. So, Jeff, you mentioned that we're talking about show closures, and a major coin show was canceled as a result of COVID-19. Tell us a little bit about that. So, I'm guessing you're talking about the Florida United Numismatists show. That was slated for early January in Orlando, which is, you know, always sort of the kickoff to the numismatic year. There's auctions, there's a, a huge bourse. It's a great excuse for dealers who are in less hospitable climes to come to Florida and soak up the sun, so to speak. I got to go to my first fun show back in January, and boy, was that a treat. It really was fun, as the name says. I'm embarrassed to say I've actually never attended a fun show. I hope to at some point in the future, but I have never actually been to one. With the weather cooling down here in New England, I would love to spend some time in Florida. But unfortunately, as you mentioned, the fun show has been canceled. Yeah, you'll have to put that on your calendar for 2022. I think, you know, there's two fun shows every year. There's one in winter and there's one in summer. And the winter fun show is always really the big gangbusters event. It kicks off the numismatic year, as I said. And, uh, you know, summer may happen. You know, we're still uh, waiting to see with the vaccine and different things. You know, that's a hotter time of year. There's certainly, it's a viable show. But the winter show, there is no doubt that that is just an enormous event when it can go on. I think that we should put it down for January 2022 to look for the next fun show event. And that will be for the winter fun show. That will be gangbusters, I bet. Now, also in January, late January, early February, we have the World Money Fair in Berlin. That was canceled. Then they've switched to a digital only or a virtual show. We're not sure how that's going to look. I'm, I'm waiting to see, you know, usually I, I attend that show, well, 2006 and then every year from 2009 forward. So we'll see how that goes. Of course, the New York International Numismatic Convention is sandwiched in. Those two shows bookend or create the sandwich for the New York show that's in between. That was canceled this year, but the thing that defines the New York show is like eight or 10 days of auctions. Those are still going on this year. So that component remains. There may be some smaller regional or local shows that do go on back in November. Uh, Had I not gotten sick, I was going to go to the show put together in St. Louis. That is like the first or second weekend in November. I know folks who went there you know, talked about how, you know, everybody was distanced and wearing a mask and all this and that. And same thing that happened for the PAN show, the Pennsylvania area numismatist show that was, I believe, at the end of October. So some shows are still going on. They're, they're grappling with how to do a show safely and in the current environment. Because certainly there are many folks who rely on shows to get new material, to sell stuff. For all the growth and the importance of online sales, which we talk about with Dr. Landsberg later, you know, there's nothing like a live show, uh, an in-person show. I can't wait for those to return when things sort of settle back into some semblance of what we used to know. You know, I know you were looking forward to um, all of these shows. I, you know, I think you may come down to New York as well next year like you did this year. And there's some opportunities that will happen I think, later in 2021, just not right now. Yep. Depending on how effective the vaccine ends up being and how quickly it's distributed, I imagine that will 
probably have an impact on coin shows scheduled for later in 2021. Although I know of some local shows that have continued during the pandemic. But on the whole, you know, it seems like the, especially the large national shows are being canceled because yes. tons of people all coming from different states and gathering in a convention center. Those are conditions that are conducive to the spread of COVID-19, which we all want to avoid. And we also hope that all of our listeners are staying safe out there. So unfortunately, Winter Fun 2021, January 2021 uh, has been canceled. Our colleague Larry Jewett wrote up uh, an announcement of the closures. So we'll include his article in the in the show notes. You all can you know read a detailed account. So, and, and I don't mean to speak for him, but I'm going to, uh, because I know he was looking forward to the fun show. Uh, his first as uh, you know, full-time staff, and it's proximate uh, to where he is. And I was uh, say, he lives in Florida, so talk about a convenient show for him to get to. Yes, and well, you know, Florida is big from tip to tip, but yeah. you know, it's sure. he, he is very close to you know, relatively speaking, an hour or within an hour, I believe, from the show site. We've sort of been encouraging his burgeoning collecting interest and uh, getting him dipping his toes in the numismatic waters, as it were. And that would have been a great place to do that. But there will be other shows. There will be more time to shop and spend and add to collections. There certainly will be. So we've been talking about a current numismatic story, but let's jump back in time and look at what was happening this week in numismatic history. What was going on, Jeff? So we're going to hop in the magical time machine. <laughs> to December 17th, 1792. That was the date. 1792, does that ring a bell? So that was the assumed date of the striking of the 1792 silver center cents. These were the first coins actually struck at the Philadelphia Mint. Now, we're going to talk about the Philadelphia Mint in a couple weeks, I believe. We're in the next few episodes. So stay tuned for more about the story about the Philadelphia Mint. Uh, but that, I thought, was uh, very interesting that it's – these are famous coins. They have the silver center plug. The reason that was done was to adjust the weight. You know, the coin production was not as precise as it became later as far as machining down uh, the metal making the planchets of even thickness and weight and so on and so forth. So when coins were found to be too large or uh, too heavy or too light, they would remove a piece and put a lighter weight or put a heavier weight in, depending on what was necessary to try to really add some haft or, like I say, remove some haft. So these are famous coins. They are, of course, in the Red Book right toward the front of the main U.S. section Famous pieces, they sell for lots of money, and it just so happens that this week, December 17th, 1792, that's the date that is given for their production. And, you know, first coin struck, actually struck at the Philadelphia Mint. You cannot get much more important than that, perhaps. Certainly not. That's very, very interesting. So this week, we're taking a look at an issue of Coin World that was published in 1977. How did we arrive at that date, Jeff? And what was happening on the front page of that issue? December 14th, 1977 issue. And this was, we just, you know, random number generator. There was no rhyme or reason. I wish I could say that the number had a relation to something. It didn't just, you know, draw it out of the hat. Uh, but there was a lot of news on the front page of this issue. The thing that jumped out at me was this headline, House Panel Delays Its Hearings on CC Dollars. Now, collectors of the U.S. coinage series know that CC Dollars references Carson City Dollars. There's a certain lore and romance and intrigue with coins of the Wild West, the Old West, Carson City particularly. Why are those among the most storied of Morgan Dollars? Well, because boatloads of them, not literally, unless, I mean, you know, maybe a dinghy, I don't know, canoes. You could load up canoes, though they would sink. But veritable boatloads of these coins were part of the GSA hoard in the 70s, GSA, General Services Administration. This story was relating to the fact that there was hearings scheduled December 8th in San Francisco to decide the fate of approximately 900,000 Carson City silver dollars that were still in government coffers 
after a series of sales. These sales went on, it turned out, looking back, you realize, oh gosh, you know, the, the GSA sale wasn't just one sale. It was like six sales over the course of a decade. And at that point, there was still, you know, 900,000 of these suckers sitting around, which is, that's a lot of, a uh, lot of coin sitting there. Okay. Eventually the sixth sale would happen in 1980, February 8th, 1980 to April 8th, 1980. And those sold out within two weeks uh, of the announcement or the beginning of the sale. Rather, that was because rising silver price made the sales more attractive. But this was the sixth sale. Then you had the seventh and final sale came a little bit after that in July of 1980, 55,000 coins to close things out. All told, apparent, I mean, we're talking like $100 million that the government got from the sales of these coins. They are much loved and important segment of the hobby today. And without that, you would have populations. I mean, Carson City Morgan dollars are not cheap to begin with because of that demand, because of the romance of them. Well, if you hadn't had the GSA sales, they would be so much more scarcer, so much more expensive, uh, very hard to collect. You know, hey, the government made some money on that and helped stimulate an area of the hobby that, gosh, is, is one of the most important segments, I would say, in the, in the modern numismatic, the current numismatic landscape. I don't want to say, when we talk about modern numismatic, some people think 1965 to present in the U.S. sense, because that was the, the line of demarcation with silver being withdrawn of most circulating coins, you know, other than the, the half dollar, which had the 40%. But the market today, GSA dollars are so important. And so the story about that is what jumped out at me. What did you see in the letters page that maybe had a parallel to today or uh, gives some nice uh, thought to consider? Yeah, absolutely. So there were two letters that jumped out at me uh, per usual, first of which is called Collects Prison Tokens. And it reads, I am a collector who has been trying very hard to put together a successful collection, which I would be proud to exhibit at various shows. I've assembled other collections of coins and have placed many times with Best of Show awarded several times. My latest interest is prison tokens and script. I've made many contacts, most of which have been unsuccessful, which brings this letter to your newspaper in hopes that you may find a corner spot for my letter. I would like for all collectors of prison material to have my name and address to submit any item of importance which they might be able to offer. I wish to make an extensive study of this material, and I hope there are collectors out there who will take the time to correspond. All information will be greatly appreciated and valued by me. This was written by Jerry Zara of Bricktown, New Jersey. And this stood out to me because we've discussed on the show a number of times the importance of building numismatic relationships, not only to enhance your enjoyment of the hobby and to create kind of a social space, but also as a way to try to track down material that you might be interested in collecting. And I thought it was really interesting that this guy from New Jersey wrote in a letter basically saying, hey, you know, reach out to me if you have any material. It's, it's sort of a pre-internet version of networking. I mean, of course, you know, major dealers and auction houses would take want lists and things like that from clients. But it was just interesting to me that the letters page of CoinWorld was serving as a forum to connect buyers to sellers and to connect people interested in prison tokens and script, which and also prison tokens and script are just really cool. So well, and I'm going to jump in here because you may not be aware that he actually was the authority became the authority and I believe published in a full issue or some sort of off-print or something related through the Tokens and Metal Society, the TAMS Journal. You know, it, it was in the Coin World Library. I mean, this is, you can find an area of the hobby to consider. Who would have thought, oh my gosh, there's, you know, why would you go looking at prison tokens? Well, there's some really interesting ones. You can get some from Sing Sing. I don't think there are any from Alcatraz, but there's some from uh, a place up in Iowa. They're just, they're all over. And, and it's, you know, any place you needed a closed system of money, because, you know, if they had used American money, well, somebody could hoard it, steal it, whatever, and use that on the way on an escape. But you got tokens, you know, you break out and you can't use that at the corner store. So it's a fascinating area. And Mr. Zara did become an expert because of his research into that very narrow field. 
Right. And isn't that interesting that we're seeing sort of the beginning of what turned into a really serious interest, you know, developing from a, a collector, you know, who eventually became an expert on this topic. So yeah, so that that letter jumped out to me for for all of those reasons. And then the second letter is entitled Gold Clauses Protect. And it reads, this writer lived through the bank holiday and consequent law forbidding our citizens to own gold coins except for collection purposes. Of what use is legislation partly restoring the right, as mentioned in Coin World issue of November 2nd, when simple acts of legislation can again make it illegal? The purposes of clauses requiring payment in gold or in specie are to assure that in the event of inflation or financial catastrophe, the owner of the security is protected. It was for this reason that in the Depression, gold was widely sought and securities payable in that medium sold at a premium. It is precisely in times of economic difficulty that the gold clause is a protection. That is precisely when it will be withdrawn. And this letter was written by Herman Hurst Jr. from Boca Raton, Florida. So I was a little bit confused by this letter. Uh, I wasn't sure what law Mr. Hurst was referring to. So I did a little bit of, of Googling and digging and found that I was aware, Jeff, as you and I talked about, that on December 31st, 1974, saw the right to own gold again restored. The public law 93-373 was signed and went into effect on December 31st, 1974. But that law didn't repeal the gold repeal joint resolution, which barred contracts that specified payment in a fixed amount of money as gold. So essentially, these contracts were unenforceable if they were using gold monetarily rather than as a commodity. But an act, and presumably this is the act that CoinWorld reported on, an act was enacted on October 28, 1977, that amended that joint resolution so that parties could include gold clauses in contracts that were made after 1977. So it's, it was a little bit complicated, and I had to do some digging to find that out. But I found this letter interesting because people talk about how gold serves as a hedge against inflation, and that's something that people talk about. And so I found Mr. Hurst's insight that it is precisely in times of economic difficulty that a gold clause is a protection that is precisely when it will be withdrawn. So there's a sense that at the time when gold clauses in contracts might be most useful or offer the most protection, that's when the government might take steps as they did in the 1930s in response to the, the Great Depression. That might be when the government would step in to make gold contracts illegal. And I also found it interesting that, you know, uh, up at the top, Mr. Hurst referred to the fact that he lived through the Great Depression and, and had experienced the bank holiday and the ban and the gold recall. So I found that really interesting as well. And yeah, and, and it also prompted me to do a little bit of digging and learn about the laws uh, restricting or allowing for gold ownership. So anyway, that was the other letter on the page that I found the most interesting. So you were talking about gold, but now I want to hear what you have been reading. What item from your golden numismatic library has caught your eye this week? Your reference to gold, Jeff, was apt because I've been reading and recently finished The Denver Mint, 100 Years of Gangsters, Gold, and Ghosts by Lisa Ray Turner and Kimberly Field. They provide an accessible, readable history of the Denver Mint, and the book might not appeal to really advanced numismatists, but it's a history that's interested in the Mint's role in the city of Denver, elaborating on the characters and interesting historical episodes as much as the coin struck there. So if people are looking for analyses of the different dyes and when they were delivered and when you know coin shipments were delivered, if you're looking for really advanced numismatic analysis. This might not be the book for you, but I found it really, really interesting how the authors connected the book to the city itself and talked about how you know different institutions in the city evolved around the Mint. Uh, they talked a little bit about people who had worked at the Mint. And some of the historical anecdotes are fascinating. I didn't know that the Mint was robbed in December of 1922, which resulted in a fiery shootout and months-long manhunt. Like, I, I did not know that that happened, and they provide an interesting write-up of that. The book also includes, and I, I found this interesting, uh, includes a number of Denver, Denver Mint, and coin-themed recipes. So if you're looking to make, um, to make numismatic dishes, you know, the book has a, sort of a culinary side to it as well. I read the book for a number of reasons. One is that I didn't know a tremendous amount about the Denver Mint, and I wanted to, to dig through it. But I also find it interesting to see how non-numismatists write about numismatic topics. 
you know, what they choose to focus on, what they get right, what they sometimes miss. You know, books like this are valuable to show numismatists what aspects of numismatics appeal to non-collectors because people wouldn't write a book for a general audience about topics that a general audience wasn't interested in. So the book itself is it's well researched. It's a great read. But Turner and Field aren't numismatists necessarily. But still, they wrote a really interesting book that I would highly recommend. Uh, It was published in 2006 to celebrate the centennial of the Denver Mint. So some of the coins the authors discuss in the future tense have already been issued. And like the letters to the editor that I read every week, this book reflects what was happening in the world of mint releases at the time it was published, right? So it it kind of, it's sort of a document of the mid-aughts. So it it was interesting to hear certain state quarters that would be released after 2006 were referred to in the future tense. Interestingly, one of the the promotional quotes on the book's cover is from John Hickenlooper, who uh, just unseated Cory Gardner uh, in a Colorado Senate election last month. Yeah, I was going to say he was the mayor at that time, I believe. Yeah, he was. It was funny. As I was looking at the books, I was picking it up to start reading it. You know, I glanced down at the promotional quotes and I saw John Hickenlooper's name and I was like, wait, what? <laughs> uh, I actually didn't know that John Hickenlooper had been mayor of Denver. I knew that he was from Colorado. I knew that he ran the Democratic primary, but I did not know that he had been mayor of Denver. He attended a centennial celebration at the Mint in 2006, which is an anecdote that the book includes. So if anyone is looking for a readable and interesting look into the history of the Denver Mint, definitely consider reading The Denver Mint, 100 Years of Gangsters, Gold, and Ghosts. So yeah, that's what I've been reading. So now that we've learned some John Hickenlooper trivia, I want to ask you and the listeners the trivia question from last week to get an answer. And then I have one for next week. All right. Last week, I decided to ask who the designer of the Sacagawea dollar was and how much this person, this artist, got paid for the design. And uh, for a wild card, I said, you know, what about that payment was special? So at the time, you said, oh, this is one I actually know. So this should be really easy. Listeners out there, you may have heard of these pieces. You certainly have heard of this artist, I bet. So Chris, in the place of the listeners... What are the answers? So, Glenna Goodacre designed the Sacagawea dollar. She was paid $5,000. And what's interesting about that payment is that it was made in Sacagawea dollars. What people only found out later was that the dollars that Goodacre was paid actually weren't quite the same as the rest of the dollars that were struck in the year 2000. The dollars that were paid to Glenna Goodacre were struck on specially prepared planchets by specially produced dyes. So the Goodacre presentation coins actually look a little bit different than their counterparts. Jamie Hernandez on PCGS Coin Facts will include a link to his description of the Goodacre dollars so you all can read uh, his analysis and can learn a little bit more about them. But the coins struck off these dyes have what Hernandez describes as a burnished satin-like appearance and tend to be of much higher quality than most regular circulation strike Sacagawea dollars of the same date from the same mint, which is Philadelphia. So the coins were presented to Glenna Goodacre and are called the Goodacre dollars. Interestingly, in the book that I just talked about, The Denver Mint, 100 Years of Gangsters, Gold, and Ghosts, the authors actually interviewed Glenna Goodacre and asked her about this. And based on that interview published in, in the book, Goodacre claims that she took a fair amount of criticism for selling off those dollars. So those coins are now in the numismatic market, so anyone interested in them can go out and purchase them. But according to Goodacre, she did take some criticism uh, for doing that. Yeah, she absolutely did. I saw, I think it was $200 a piece for some of them at the time. So, I mean, that, that's, that was a way to make a lot of money selling money, you know, because of the special nature of them. But hey, you know, you got something there's only 5000 of, and, you know, granted, it's not a Morgan dollar collection. It's the small dollar, which has fewer collectors, but it was certainly a way to capitalize. Good for you for getting that. Oh, thank you. It's, it's funny. It, I read the Denver Mint 100 Years of Gangsters, Golden Ghosts at a fortuitous time for this question because I finished it a couple of weeks ago. And then you asked me this question last week and I was like, oh, I actually just read about that. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. So anyway, what's the new question? What's, what's my next challenge? For next week, we have and this is expert level question, but I think um, I think you know it, and I think it's been mentioned in in the hobby enough, so it might not today. I don't know that it qualifies as expert level, but you know, this is from the Coin World Trivia Game. The U.S. Virgin Islands issued coinage while under what earlier name? 
like I say, it's expert, but I, I think it's one of these that people know. So we'll have the answer to that next week. Don't go cheat on us and, and look up in Google or whatever. If anything, get your Coin World Almanac out and, and check it out. I thought that question was most appropriate because it's considered a world coin, but it has a U.S. focus. And, you know, we talked about uh, lots of interesting world coins with Dr. Landsberg in this interview coming right up. So it just made sense. Uh, on that note, here's our interview. We are thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Paul Landsberg, who runs Ephesus Numismatics and is a name familiar to many folks who are buying world coins on Facebook groups. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Jeff. So every day or so, I see all the things that you post on Facebook. And of course, I've been to your booth at uh, the big A&A show in 2019. You know, so you probably have the most eclectic offering of world coins out there as any seller is offering. And it gave me, you know, sort of pause to think about Let's explore the market for world coins because it's such a different market than for U.S. You know, it's smaller for one. You know, there's so many more directions that one can take. So let's just talk about the ongoing allure of world coins. Why should somebody consider world coins as a collecting area if they're not, they really haven't been involved in that before? I mean, for me, it's so much of what I buy and sell and, and collect is, does it interest me? And so world coins... Maybe you find out that you've got some Hungarian roots in your family tree. So you go look at Coins of Hungary and you'll find the most wonderful designs there. And you go back towards medieval Hungary, you'll find even neater designs. Part of the challenge with World Coins, admittedly, is trying to find a focus. If you want to try to collect a coin of every country, people do that. If you want to try to collect a coin of every century, you can do that. If you want to collect coins with cats on them, you can do that. So there's so many areas in there that might grab your interest and just make you want to gravitate there that I think world coins are really accessible to to quite, actually everybody, as far or wide as you want to go. Is it that abundance of areas to explore that attracts people to world coins? If not, what is it that draws people in? I think it's personal. I little The reason I brought up Hungary is that the... A collector friend of mine who lives close by, he found he did have hung roots in Hungary, so he wanted to pick up some Hungarian coins. I have German uh, roots in my background, and so coins of Germany interest me. There was quite a few folks who were quite religious in North Carolina, and the number of religious themes on world coins is immense. So I, I don't know that it's one universal aspect. It's more of a, whatever excites you. Is there a typical world coin collector or is that also sort of not easy to peg? I think personally, that's one of the biggest struggles for world coin dealers is that if you try to serve the needs of the collector who wants a coin of every country, your inventory is going to be dramatically different than the collector who wants super, super high-end dollars. And I, I'm going to probably stand by the statement that if you look at world coin dealers at coin shows, they usually have a, a donkey train of carts to bring in all their material. And so it, it is difficult to, to try to address so many different segments. So oftentimes people have to specialize. The collector has to specialize and the dealer has to specialize. Well, the number of different segments that you're talking about are kind of chronicled in WorldCoin catalogs, which just for catalogs dealing with WorldCoin struck since the beginning of the 17th century, you know, those catalogs can fill up quite a bit of shelf space, which I think is daunting or can be overwhelming to collectors looking to jump into world coins. How could someone narrow their focus into something more manageable or even that just easier to think about? Arguably read Coin World because there's some really, <laughs> really great articles about different facets of world coins. And, and one of those might interest you. Again, I, I go back to family. When you know that you've had family that came from maybe from Russia or maybe from France, there's a little bit of a curiosity. What kind of coinage what, uh, did they spend at the time? And then one thing might lead to another. Jeff, you mentioned my uh, the diversity that I have. I really enjoy emergency money. When times get bad, people will print currency and create coinage that can be absolutely bizarre. And that interests me. But so if you start looking at emergency coinage of Germany, then you say, well, France did that and Italy did that. So there's Really, one thing leads to another with, with uh, World Coin. Yeah, I think it's hard to for somebody who's new, you know, a beginner, to figure things out. And I think, is it fair to say that 
you know, if you were advising somebody who's just getting started, sort of, I think of it in the way of college. You know, the first couple of years, if you go to college and you don't have a major picked out, well, the first couple of years is to figure it out. Take all the different classes, look at the different areas, and then at some point you make the decision where you're going to head toward and focus on and narrow it down. And then you have to put in the time, and it's not just those two years, especially if you're going to get an advanced degree, to become a specialist. It sort of seems like that's analogous to approach one could take in world coins. I agree. And I think if you can go to any of the major coin shows where you might find a, a dozen, maybe 20 world coin dealers, immerse yourself, stop by their tables, look and chat and look and chat, and you you will see hundreds and thousands of coins, and it'll be a way to see what makes your eyes go wide, what makes your heart race a little bit. That is a great way to see what attracts you in world coins is by just looking at what people have out there. With world coins, is there more competition than comparable U.S.-based items? For instance, a, a top pop rarity, you know, uh, one out of one, it's the finest known piece. Are coins like that that are truly exceptional cheaper or more expensive than their comparable U.S. counterparts? They're cheaper. Nobody should ever forget the law of supply and demand. It's That's universal. And so there are people, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of collectors of Lincoln cents. So scarce coins go for very high prices. There are some European coins that actually a lot of the Europeans aren't really bought into the slabbing system yet, but just top pop and you can't sell the coin. There's really no interest. So it's a much skinnier marketplace, a lot fewer collectors, a lot fewer dealers. And at the same time, there's probably a lot less money chasing any individual coin. In light of that, do you think that there is a potential for people to make money as a dealer by buying high-end world coins where there might not be quite as robust a market, but acquiring really exceptional world coins like we're talking about and then marketing them sort of aggressively or marketing them in sort of an innovative way? Yes. I talk to a lot of new collectors, whether it's at the coin clubs or at shows. And I think, again, it's one of those fundamental truths that a dollar coin now is going to be a dollar coin or less forever. You'll never be able to sell that. And it holds true, I think, for U.S. coins and ancient coins and world coins. The the higher the grade, the higher the scarcity, the more opportunity there is if you're looking at it from a, a money-making standpoint. So you sell a truly remarkable selection of material from almost every imaginable time period and region. I've seen you selling encased postage stamps from post-World War I Germany to coins of ancient Greece. Just truly a, a huge selection of material from all over the map. Where do you source this wide range of material from? Do you find that you get them in estate sales? Is it largely dealer-to-dealer? Dealer? Uh, are they largely found in dealer-to-dealer dealer transactions? Where do you source this material from, and where have you found some of the choicest material? <laughs> if I answered a, a giant <laughs> box in my basement, would that be inappropriate? <laughs> <laughs> nah, hey, I mean, if that's what it is, that's what it is. Hey, uh, I have your address, so no. <laughs> <laughs> I will admit that as a collector, I think I started collecting 40 years ago right now, uh, maybe even 45 years ago. And if you're truthful with yourself, collectors accumulate. So some of this odd, bizarre material comes from, I was at a coin show in, in Michigan and someone threw an auction catalog on my table and the Detroit Museum of Art, I want to say, was deaccessioning primitive money. Well, how am I going to pass up primitive money from the Detroit Museum of Art? And sure enough, two weeks later, these two large boxes arrive. I'm just in heaven going through it. So auctions are a primary venue for acquisition. And admittedly right now, with this thing called the internet, there's a new European auction house opening up just about every week. Porcelain coins, as an example. The collectors from 1920, they've moved on. And so these large collections of porcelain will come out there and, and I'll buy it. I, I did even fly to Germany to acquire one of those collections because the auctioneer contacted me and he said, Mr. Landsberg, I don't know how to ship this to you. So I found a really, really, really cheap flight to Germany and combined it. So auctions, estate sales are tough. I have to, to say, particularly here in North Carolina, some of these estate sales, they'll put coins in there and, and you look at it and go, wow, you should go to a coin show. And um, I guess that sort of covers where, and dealer to dealer, obviously. The bigger coin shows are just 
ripe with dealer-to-dealer trading. So there's an opportunity if I have material that I don't have customers for. Nobody's going to come talk to me for modern world proof sets. So if I can move those to somebody who does have those customers, that's a win-win situation. I mean, you do occasionally offer that kind of stuff. Certainly, I think of like the uh, giant 20 Balboas from Panama. (laughs) It seems like, you know, every week for two months, you were uncovering one of those. But that speaks to the sort of the next area we want to get to, which is the importance of these online sales groups. You're in half a dozen or more groups on Facebook, and then you've also created your own, Paul's Preview Atrium. How have these groups really affected the market, impacting the market? And certainly in a pandemic as we are this year, I should note, you did not travel to Germany this year. That was a while ago. (laughs) But, you know, uh, social media groups have really been exploding in importance, it seems. What does that prominence say for that avenue and the new way forward in light of everybody being tied into tech? But then, you know, the future of shows, if if I can find neat material and by gosh, priced right. I mean, I've seen a dozen comments on your post about people saying, as soon as I see something posted, I just type buy it now because I don't care what it is. I don't know what it is. I know it's going to be a good deal and neat. A lot of questions wrapped up in there, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to apologize if if you hear some marketing speak come out of my mouth, but just because I have a full-time job for a corporation, so you can't help but hear these buzzwords. And one of the things a corporation focuses on is channels. How do they go to market? Do they have direct sellers? Do they use intermediate, larger second parties to help them sell? There's all kinds of of ways. As a dealer, if you step back and you try to be a little analytical, we all know about eBay. Heck, even your six-year-old probably knows about eBay. And so that used to be the the hot venue where you could list items and it would be exposed to millions of people across the world and they might buy it. And eBay's run into problems. And I'll be honest, I don't think I've sold, I think I've sold three items on eBay in the past five years. What's taken its place? Uh, Arguably, of course, you want to try a website because with a website, you can draw people in and if they bought from you and they like what they've got, they're going to come back. The real difference, I think, with Facebook, and I I think this will address your question, is that someone will see an item that I I list up there, and the groups, the different groups, like there's a a group for foreign world paper and coins. By definition, if you've joined that group, you have an interest in that. So the stuff you list is not shown to everybody, but it might get shown to 30, 40, 50 people. And if they're connected with you on Facebook, if you're a friend or they've liked your items before, the Facebook algorithms will push it in front of them. So you've got people predisposed to buy foreign that Facebook nudges to show them my item. And it's powerful. That That's where a lot of the, the websites have missed out. They haven't created this sort of a social influencer aspect to any of the coin sites. The two biggest ones I know of are MA Shops and Vcoins. Yeah. And as far as I know, they don't have a social aspect, though there is something you can actually follow a store uh, both on MA Shops and Vcoins. Now, w- with Facebook, though, I really like the American Coin Club. And uh, to be blunt about it, it's because there are something like 15,000 members, I believe. Yeah. So, and I, again, if I post something, it's not shown to 15,000 people. But anybody who's connected to me as a friend and is part of the American Coin Club, they get a notification on their event. So I have friend requests, and then if you're a coin colleague, I accept it. So that the moment I post something, I guarantee you at least 50, if not 100 people, see an event pop up on their wall. And that's why you see those instant purchases. They see the event. Like everybody else, you're sitting on a couch with your phone. You click on it. Hey, I like that, and you buy it. So I mean, Facebook is unstoppable in the context of how do you connect really neat coins to people who have an interest. There are issues. I think Facebook has some there's some rules in the background. You're not supposed to be selling. They have certain rules, and, and I don't know how that plays out. And Facebook's a business. You know they want to get a cut at some point. But I, I think that's all in the future. Yeah, that certainly is an issue that the communities will have to contend with. And your description of the couch coin shopping, um, <laughs> certainly that's posed a pretty serious danger to my wallet and to my pocketbook. So I know. <laughs> so certainly I can see the appeal of, I wouldn't quite describe it as frictionless coin buying, but certainly coin buying that you can do from home, especially in a time when the world is dealing with a pandemic. There's certainly some value in that. 
You mentioned something earlier that I thought was interesting, that a lot of the big websites dedicated to selling coins don't really have much of a social space where numismatic social media groups, like the groups on Facebook that we're talking about, do offer a little bit more of that community building, sort of a sense of camaraderie, esprit de corps, call it what you like. How do you think these Facebook groups and numismatic social media groups in general could more effectively create a community space and could help to connect people, not just for transactions and not just to buy coins, but to really form a numismatic community? I mean, it's a difficult question. And part of it goes back to the the minute you get into being a, a social media provider, you've got to worry about liability. And if uh, we, we know sort of the craziness that goes on in the country. So how many moderators do you need to spend to make sure people don't do stupid things and all know that there's quite a bit of that can go on. So I think nowadays uh, with the the amount of technology and tools out there, anybody like a a V-Coins Heritage, for for instance, could connect people in a social environment where there's discussion back and forth. There could be banter. And by the way, banter is an effective mechanism. I, I will shamelessly say, I want to connect with you as a customer. And if I can make you smile, if I can connect you on, on some other level, it's going to make you more predisposed to buy coins from me. But again, as a corporation who's got to run it, it's challenging to bring in a social component. Facebook has sort of gotten big enough so that they can go in front of Congress and say, nah, we'll think about it. I don't have any easy answers there. Actually, I don't have any easy answers. So I want to explore one thing that wasn't even sort of in my mind for the discussion today, but it kind of came to it. I have to imagine, I know you moved recently uh, and you've gotten rid of some things, but I have to imagine you have a numismatic library that is just immense. Given the the knowledge and the things that you tell stories with a lot of the, the pieces that you're selling, and that seems to be an effective technique to sell things. Because I think I've always believed that stories sell coins. How big is your library and how important is a numismatic library, both as a collector and in the dealer side? When I moved, I got a room, nice glass doors on it. And I called the handyman who was an absolute overachiever. And I said, this half of the room, I want bookshelves, floor to ceiling. Every single one ought to be able to hold 500 pounds. And I said, he's an overachiever. So he really, he went to town on it. And I grew up in the period where people still say, buy the book before you buy the coin. And I love the hunt. I tell the story about, there was a particular book about Venetian Grosso's, the silver coin that depicted Christ enthroned. And I searched... I saw it once at a coin show and I took down all the information. I searched eight years before I could find it. And it wasn't a dog at daily pursuit, but I had web searches out there. I would contact people and I found them. And of course, never buy one when you can buy multiples. I bought five of them. I had them shipped here from Italy. So I have, I can't, I haven't counted them or books. And to maybe further expose my geekdom, if any of you know Bruce Burton out of Houston, Texas, he is a numismatic bookseller. He's amazing. Absolutely amazing. And he literally drives a truck to the show and cart after cart after cart of books gets unloaded. And it's not just that he sells the books. You can ask him, Jeff, I want to know about iron coins from Russia in 1720, if there, those exist. And he'll know about it. And Bruce actually drove through North Carolina, oh, call it three or four months ago. And we masked up and we spent what should have been an, an hour visit, we ended up spending five hours. He would point at titles and, and just, it was a total book geek fest that went on. But I won't pretend, I don't end up reading those books cover to cover. You're there, you browse through them, what interests you. And then even the other dealers at the show, when you sit up next to them, you hear their shtick. And some of it leaches over into my own. Yeah, I, I recall you, you know, with one of the um, coins of Christ, you know, a dealer friend of mine likes to talk about um, <laughs> I'm assuming you have a document where you just copy and paste some of this stuff because that's, <laughs> I mean, to expedite things. But uh, but really, the stories do help sell the coins. And people, uh, I even have a, a friend in the local coin club 
when, you know, I've talked to him about something, he's like, oh, that's really cool. Can you print out the story for me? You know, and okay, sure. Let me, you know, because he wants to have it with his coin because it explains it. And it's something that it's accessible to anybody then. It's not just a round metal disc with imagery that has to be interpreted. The work has been done. Again, marketing speak, the idea of collateral. I can show you a couple of pieces of Russian wire money. I can give you the story behind it. And yeah, you're you're interested, but then you get home and you're like, what the heck are these little chips of silver here? So uh, an effective mechanism for selling is to, particularly if you have multiples of a coin type, is that you can create a piece of collateral, something, half sheet of paper, maybe a picture, a nice, catchy explanation of what it is. And that becomes a, a selling mechanism I think everybody has seen what Education Coin Company does yeah. with particular coins. They they do packaging. They take it to a whole nother uh, level of magnitude with leather packaging or wood and glossy printed. That's manageable for, for anything that you choose to sell. One thing I've always kind of wondered about as I peruse these groups is I've noticed dealers offering to teach new dealers, you know, experienced dealers offering to teach newcomers how to deal coins effectively. And I can't say that I've I've ever, um, you know, explored that. I haven't ever actually asked for, you know, aside from an occasional, you know, if I'm getting a quote for a story or something, I'll ask a couple of basic questions. So I haven't sort of put myself in the position of, of being educated as to how to be a dealer. I approach this as Jeff does almost exclusively as a writer, you know, trying to understand how, you know, the dynamics of the market, trying to shine a light on interesting material. For someone interested in becoming a dealer, what advice would you give them about how to start out in what can sometimes be a competitive business? There's a lot of details around it. I guess you also have to look at it. And this is true in any industry. The guys who have money make money. And so the reality is that when I go to a dealer table, if he knows that I'm going to write him a $5,000 check, his prices are going to be much, much better than if I'm going to buy a $50 coin. So you've got to, to have some cash behind you because if you end up becoming inventory rich where you've got 500 coins, but you need to sell one just to get gas money to go home, you're in a bad position. And so it's managing your cash flow is supremely important. I know some dealers who will very snarkily say that you make money when you buy the coin. They're not wrong. The moment you buy the coin and then if someone says, well, what's that worth? The real answer is whatever else someone is willing to pay for it. Right. So God bless you if you want to go pay $5,000 for that 1960 Roosevelt dime, but no one's going to want to buy it from you. So the buying end is supremely important. And fortunately, unfortunately, there are a lot of dealers who have a collector element in them. And so you'll see something, oh, that's neat. I love it. I want to buy it. You realize in the cold sunlight the next day that, ooh, that wasn't the right thing to do. There's an extent to which, obviously, dealers need to separate their collecting impulse or their, ooh, that's really cool impulse from their from their buying impulse. And what it also sounds like is that you're saying that dealers, whether specializing in US or world material, have to buy with intention. And it sounds like you need to have a plan and have, you know, a more than passing familiarity with the market for any given piece of material. That is true. And I see this. It's very true where I'll say a U.S. dealer who has three ancient coins in their case, they might be nice. But if they didn't know the market and they sold them because, oh, there's a uh, actually I saw a Celtic gold coin that was slabbed and Anax slab, very nice coin. Price very reasonable, but nobody, nobody is going to stop by that dealer to look at ancient coins. And the sort of U.S. material he had, would they want a $700 gold ancient coin? Not really. And by the way, that's true. for When I go to show, I'll handle ancients at world. I've had some really, really neat U.S. type coins. I'll never even get to show them because nobody stops by my table to look at those. So you, you do have to align your inventory with the customer's. I think there there is also an element of, and by the way, this is also true for collectors. Collectors are really, really, really scared of losing money. Is could it be fake or, or so forth? They spend their life looking for ghosts. And conversely, as a dealer, you've you kind of you win some, you lose some. You if you're open to make money on every single coin, you're being unrealistic. Right. And to what extent is it important for a dealer to cultivate a brand? 
you know, there are some dealers that I, you know, I might not know them personally, but I've seen them around and I have a general sense as to what kind of stuff they usually offer and how much knowledge they have. So not only in terms of sort of numismatic specialization of learning everything there is to know about a given type of material, but having sort of a brand, how would you go about cultivating that? And to what extent is that important? Or can someone just succeed if they happen to have cool material and know how to market it? I'm all full of stories. I'll tell you a story. I was down in Texas, set up at a coin show, and I, I was focusing primarily on ancients at the time. I was set up diagonally from uh, Nick Economopoulos, a long, long, long time dealer from the, the Northeast and great, great guy. And sometimes I had comparable material. And I don't want to say frustrating, but I would flinch. I would see people. They would walk in from their front door. They would walk to Nick's table, spend a half hour there, write him a check, and they walk back out of the show. And at a certain point, you do the face palm and go, what? Why don't they stop here? Likewise, uh, my colleague, Tom Wood, who specializes in biblical and colonial coins, we oftentimes will share tables or at least have tables next to each other. And I've been to coin shows when he couldn't make it. People will walk up to me and say, oh, Tom's not here. And then they look really sad and walk away. <laughs> so that familiarity, I, and I don't know that it's a brand. I'm not sure I would call it that, but the moment someone has bought something from you and they're happy, the inclination is that, I, and it happens to me, when I go to a coin show, I will stop at the tables of people I've bought from before. I've got a limited budget. Everybody has a limited budget. So if you're going to spend money, you you go find people you were comfortable with, you like them. And I, by the way, on, on that topic, I was a coin dealer out of New Jersey. I saw him treat his assistant just miserably. And I said to myself, I got limited money. Why am I going to spend it on this uh, bulldog? So the uh, getting, again, the, the first purchase and, and connecting with your customers is important because that leads to a huge amount of repeat business. I'm not sure it's a brand, though, in the sense of a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi. Sure. Yeah. You certainly get a lot of repeat business. And I think that's because of, for one thing, I, I look at some of this and go, especially the, the silver related stuff and go, how is he making any money on this? <laughs> you know, selling it at Melton, free shipping or whatever, add 350 for shipping. So certainly you have quite a following. And that's why I wanted to spend a little time Ben, in your ear today, Chris and I, and, and really, you know, ask him questions and, and explore what you know. So thank you so much for doing that with us. And um, I can tell that you love world coins. You know, Chris and I love world coins. And uh, so we appreciate you being here today. Oh, absolutely. Thank you. That was our interview with Dr. Paul Landsberg, Ephesus Numismatics. Uh, we hope you enjoyed that little uh, foray into the exciting world of world numismatics, as well as the modern market for coins and other items being sold on social media. And if you enjoyed that interview or any of the rest of the episode, or if you've enjoyed listening to any of our previous content, I sound like a broken record, but please remember to keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe. It is the best way for you to support the podcast. And until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at CoinWorld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to CoinWorld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today.